Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are very pleased to be able to bring to you the audio recordings of the Casebook Classic Crime Symposium that took place at the Chamberlain Hotel in London on Saturday, December 5th, 2015. This event was organized by Frog Moody and Time Zone Publishing's Casebook Classic Crime in conjunction with the Whitechapel Society, with Philip Hutchison as the MC. All four talks will be presented in their entirety and uncut, and the accompanying slide presentations will be made available for download on the individual presentations podcast page at casebook.org. So we'll get things started with the first speaker of the day, John Reese, on his chosen topic, In a Nutshell, a close look at the life's work of Francis Glessner Lee. Ladies and gentlemen, I've been asked to announce if anybody's walked in without paying, because we know you're all such honest people, having an interest in such an honest way of earning a living. Um, if you could speak to Ruby and give her, I think it's three thousand pounds each. Um, that that will supplement um, the mystery speaker's uh, allowance for today. And also, if you haven't booked for the buffet, if you haven't already paid for that, and you want to stay for the buffet, you need to pay Ruby for that as well. Otherwise, you need to go out begging on the streets. Uh, just hunched up in a corner outside some bottles singing Where is Love in a soprano voice. So, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Casebook Classic Crime Symposium and uh, welcome to the Chamberlain Hotel in the historic Minories. Having spent an hour scouring the internet for any historical information about this building, all I've discovered is that it's a typical Victorian pub with five floors and 64 bedrooms. Uh, therefore, the following information about this venue is completely fictional. <laughs> The Chamberlain dies directly, uh, lies directly over the portal to the Seven Gates of Hell, which were discovered by Edward III upon his return from Australia in 65 BC. <laughs> over the years, this building has played host to William the Conqueror, Elizabeth Bartery, Moby Dick, and the Cheeky Girls. It's also the site of the Battle of Waterloo. The current pub was built a decade before it was constructed in 20 years' time. The Chamberlain's unique in having floors, which prevent the patrons from falling through into the basement. Uh, the use of state-of-the-art doors allow the public to enter and leave the building. Uh, this access was installed after three years of the pub, originally having no customers whatsoever. And that quote comes from Bruce Robinson's They All Love Jack. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, with the swearing removed. Uh, there's been an extreme effort on behalf of Frog uh, when acquiring today's speakers. Time after time, all four would uh, badger him to be allowed to speak, but sensibly Frog replied, No stranger danger! And uh, eventually he gave in, and uh, so we're stuck with them now. Uh, a group of men so underground and mysterious, uh, you mention their names and people go, Who? Uh, t- today... We, uh, we promise uh, no fireworks, no crackpot theories, no egos, in, in fact, nothing you may be expecting. Just four men who do their work and do it bloody well. Knowing all four of them and their, their struggles with even stringing a sentence together, it's remarkable that they're all here in the same place at the same time and all standing on both feet, even if they aren't their own. Uh, by chasing each of them up, to, sorry, by chaining each of them up to different corners of the room, uh, we hope violence today will be kept to a minimum. If any of them kick off, we usually find covering their heads with a blanket calms them down as it reminds them of past court appearances. <laughs> I, I did say to Frog that I would be uh, basing my introductions purely on insults alone, and he said, you're not including me in that, are you? And I replied, no. And he said, well, you can if you want. So uh, Frog Moody's a shit and Salisbury's the arse of the world. <laughs> How 
going to take place today, we have four speakers, as you're well aware. Each one will speak for 45 minutes. If they go over that, you can start booing them. Uh, I think we've actually arranged a great big stick to, to, to drag them off. Uh, obviously, music we play throughout to distract you. There's, there's a vague hint, which seems to be lost on the management. Uh, so after each speech, um, there will be about 50 minutes for a Q&A. So we'll have one speaker, then another speaker. Then there'll be an hour and a half, uh, sorry, not an hour, an hour for lunch from uh, half one till half two. And then... Uh, hey. Just for lunch. And then, then after lunch, uh, there'll be two more speakers in the afternoon. Uh, so... Without any further ado, moving on to today's first speaker. Today's mystery speaker is, is a so-called mystery speaker because it's a mystery why anyone's decided to book him. <laughs> John Reese, uh, wonderful, handsome, well-dressed. Just three of the words John just said to me whilst I was writing his introduction. <laughs> Uh, John's from Swansea in South Wales and holds a Master's of Science in Forensic Psychology and Criminology. He's had an interest in true crime since a young age, particularly the Jack the Ripper case. He spoke at the 2013 Jack the Ripper conference on the psychology of eyewitness testimony, and I think uh, most would concur it was possibly the best talk of the weekend, as, as John showed how flawed mental recall could be whilst he slowly persuaded us to go out into the Myland Road and kill all the passers-by as sacrifices to his evil Welsh Tom Jones worshipping cult. <laughs> uh, he's moderator for JTRforums.com and a frequent contributor to SpookyIsles.com. His other interests include scouting and amateur dramatics. So get ready for a diva tying knots, a uh, bit, bit like Boy George did a few years ago. Um, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, John Rees. <laughs> Uh, thank you, Philip, for that introduction, which has, I think, left me speechless. Uh, <laughs> so uh, today um, we're going to talk about the uh, life's work of Francis Gessner Lee, who, uh, despite the, um, I, I don't know, <laughs> despite the uh, influence she had on forensics and the investigation of crime and on popular culture, she's uh, a figure that hasn't been heard of much. So uh, we're going to quickly look at one piece of popular culture she's influenced before we start discussing her life um, and uh, some of the effect it's had on forensics. There's meant to be audio, but I don't think it's worked, so uh, it doesn't matter. So uh, during the seventh season, CSI had a storyline about a serial killer who left miniature crime scenes at uh, the, the places where they committed their crimes, which were exact recreations of the crimes in a scale model. Um, believe it or not, this is actually based on fact. Not a serial killer, but Francis Gessner Lee, and uh, I think truth in this case is stranger than fiction. So we're going to quickly look at Francis Gessner Lee the godmother of crime scene investigation. And there's a picture of uh, Miss Lee there who uh, looks nothing like um, what you think a CSI would be. So uh, she was born in 1878 in Chicago and known as Fanny to uh, John Jacob Glessner Lee, a wealthy uh, manufacturer of agricultural machinery. 
the family was very wealthy and um, she wanted to attend Harvard and train as a doctor. She always had an interest in uh, human anatomy and uh, solving mysteries. From a young age she read Sherlock Holmes and was absolutely fascinated by crime. But because of the family social standing, very wealthy, upper class, um, a woman couldn't do that, couldn't become a doctor. She was homeschooled and raised to be a mother and wife. Um, her father was very controlling of her life. Even after she got married, um, he bought the house they lived in, made sure it was nearby to them, controlled the money she had, um, made sure that he was totally in control of her life well into adulthood. The marriage ended in divorce, and because of the shame of this, she was sent away um, to live in the countryside for a time. Her brother had a completely different life. Um, George Glessner, he was allowed to go to Harvard. He trained as a doctor, and one day brought home a friend, uh, Dr. George McGrath. And uh, he, McGrath was perhaps one of the major influences on Lee's life. Um, he had an interest in death investigation and crime scenes. And uh, the two became friends because of this common interest in crime and uh, the detection of it, and they campaigned for improvements to the system in America. Now, at the time, um, coroners in America didn't need to have medical degrees. Police weren't trained on medical aspects of detective work. Um, so the police, when investigating a crime scene, wouldn't consider um, any forensic evidence, destroying potential evidence. So um, that was one of the things they campaigned for, to make awareness for the police. Now, in the 1930s, her parents died, and she finally had some freedom, and she had her inheritance. So she went and formed the Harvard School of Legal Medicine and financially underwrote the position of chairperson. From there, she inaugurated the first Harvard Associates in Police Science seminar, known as HAPS, in 1945. Uh, here, police officers were invited to participate learn about investigating crimes from a medical or forensic standpoint. But one limitation to this was they couldn't actually look at real crime scenes during the seminar. Um, it just wasn't practical you know, to have police go out to crime scenes or be involved in investigating you know, real crime scenes while attending them. So um, she, has, she tried to think of a way to get around this, which uh, is what we'll look at in a bit. So, but the police officer, she became a mother figure, and uh, she was often said to be more maternal to them than her actual children. Some of them even sent her Mother's Day cards, and uh, she was so well thought of, she was made an honorary police captain in New Hampshire in 1942. She was the first female member of the American Academy of Forensic Sciences, and the first woman to be invited to join the International Chief of Police Association. And then uh, in 1962, she died, um, but her legacy lived on. So, um, first of all, she's said to be inspiration for the character of Jessica Fletcher, a murder she wrote. Uh, the medical examiner's role was established, next training provided to doctors to fill it. Uh, and the seminars she started still run to this day. And then the final part of her legacy is what's known as the nutshell studies. So she was brought up with the traditional practice of making dolls' houses and miniatures. And she was taught how to make crafts and intricate items. And her father had an interest in furniture and decor, which uh, he passed on to her. 
1913, while um, as a young adult, she made her first miniature of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra as a present for her mother's birthday. She spent two months crafting 90 tiny musicians, all fully garbed in the clothes they'd wear for the concerts, each with actual musical scores and a specific instrument. Uh, now, her mother was friends with several members of the orchestra, and she could pick out some of her friends from the miniatures. The next one was of the Flonzelay Quartet, which she spent two years on. It was far more detailed and accurate. Some of the miniature instruments produced a sound, and it was so minutely individualised, the four men on whom it was based were astonished by the resemblance to them and the way they stood or sat while playing. So in 1943, she began work on the nutshell studies. Each one took three months to build, and she produced three a year. They were intricate, detailed dollhouse miniatures of actual crime scenes. Each one was the 112 scale of one inch to one foot, and they were based on real-life cases, but she changed details friend identification. Uh, the sources for them would be she'd read police reports, visit the crime scenes, and even attend autopsies. Uh, she had a master carpenter aid her in their construction. She planned out the miniatures. He produced the blueprints and built them as if it was a normal house. And the furniture was either bought from dollhouse supplies or made to spec, but uh, often the things in the dolls' houses weren't accurate enough for her, so she'd take them apart and improve them so they were exact to her purposes. She felt that uh, if they weren't exact 100%, the police officers wouldn't take them seriously. She even used to wear clothes so they were appropriately worn and then used them to make miniature clothes. She knitted socks and stockings using pins. Uh, this one shown here, the burnt log cabin. Um, she actually made a perfect wall cabin and then set it on fire. Um, just to, so the burn pattern be right. So that's not paint, that is actual uh, flame damage. And uh, these are still used to this day. Uh, oh, do you want to do that? Um, they now reside in the Maryland Medical Examiner's Office in Baltimore. Uh, the one shown here is... Uh, the free room dwelling, which is one of the most famous ones. Um, it shows a crime scene with three dead bodies, a parent and a baby, um, and the police officers have to investigate what they think happened. If it was a murder, a suicide, an accident. Um, in this case, is it a triple murder, a double murder and suicide? Uh, they'd have 90 minutes to examine one. They'd be given a flashlight, a magnifying glass, and a sheet of witness statements, and they present an analysis of case, whether the witness statements were true or false, any medical evidence needs to be gathered, whether the case is a probable homicide, suicide, or accident. Um, now, nowadays, the investigators, as well as looking for these things, they also suggest modern forensic methods that could be used, so um, examine a glass for DNA, for example. So this is the purpose here which uh, Miss Glessner Lee came up with for why they exist. Um, I can't actually see it so I can't read it out, but uh, I'm, uh, I'm sure you can read it there. And uh, her instructions for it were the nutshell models are built on the scale of one inch to one foot. Because continuous action cannot be represented, each model is a tableau depicting the scene at the most effective moment, very much as if a motion picture was stopped at such a point. The inspector may best examine them by imagining himself a trifle less than six inches tall. 
With that firmly in mind, a few moments of observation will then make him able to step into the scene and there find many tiny details that might otherwise escape notice. Comparison of certain familiar objects will also be helpful, as for instance, a table of standard height 30 inches becomes 2.5 inches. An ordinary side chair with seat 18 inches high is now only 1.5 inches high. A revolver of about 11 and 3 quarter inches overall length, here but a scant inch, etc. In presenting these cases, the nutshell laboratories are acting as a consulting agency. The time and date when a case is presented to them is not necessarily the same as the time and date when it was reported to the police. Each case is based on actual facts, altered to avoid identification and enlarged to create a more intricate problem. It will simplify the examiner's work if he will first choose the point at which he enters the scene and beginning at his left at the place, describe the premises in a clockwise direction back to the starting point, thence to the centre of the scene and ending with the body and its immediate surroundings. He should look for and record indications of the social and financial status of the people involved in each model, as well as anything that may illustrate their state of mind up to or at the time of demonstration. Unless otherwise indicated, no photographs or fingerprints will be available. The investigator must base his report on the material as represented. The observer should approach his assignment as if he were the special officer detailed to investigate the case. The information supplied concerning each model is that which the officer would normally have when sent to investigate, together with the first statements obtained from one or more of the most immediately accessible witnesses. It must not be overlooked that these statements may be true, mistaken or intentionally false, or a combination of any two or all three of these. The observer must therefore view each case with an entirely open mind. The nutshell studies are not presented as crimes to be solved, they are rather designed as exercises in observing and evaluating indirect evidence, especially that which may have medical importance. The investigator must bear in mind that the twofold responsibility to clear the innocent as well as to expose the guilty. He is seeking only the facts, the truth in a nutshell. So what we're going to do now is have a look at uh, some more in-depth pictures of some of these and uh, perhaps have a go at uh, the exercise ourselves. So uh, what I've got on the slides, um, we're going to look at four or up to four of these, depending if we run out of time, of the crime scenes. And um, I've got macro pictures of certain aspects that a PhD student who's uh, done a project on these and kindly put on the internet has uh, provided. Um, so there's some analysis on the slides and I've also done some of my own analysis as well. So we're going to start with the kitchen. So uh, I'll leave that up for a minute or so so people can uh, have a quick look and uh, take in the details. Oh, my name is Wade. <laughs> Sorry, <Ian. laughs> So uh, here we have the initial witness statement. Um, the case occurred on April 11th, 1944. That's not that relevant for us. Uh, the deceased is Robin Barnes, a housewife. The witness is Fred Barnes, her husband. And he says, I went downtown at four o'clock to run an errand for my wife. After about an hour and a half, I came back and found the outside door to the kitchen locked. It was propped open when I left. I knocked and called, but got no answer. I tried the front door, but it was also locked. I went to the kitchen window, which was closed and locked. I looked in and saw her lying on the floor. I called the police, who forced open the kitchen door. And uh, the model shows the premises just before the police forced open the door. 
So this is effectively the untouched scene. So uh, first of all is the body. Um, the medical examiner looked for signs of blunt trauma to the head. Um, and then also the ice cube tray is next to her. Then we have the stove. There's a freshly cooked cake. Um, and interestingly, her face is a pinkish-red colour, which is a sign of asphyxiation. Uh, the sink, so there's uh, dishes in the middle of being washed. The butcher's block, I think that's a chopping board uh, first in the UK. So uh, she's in the middle of a lot of household tasks. The window and table, immaculate kitchen, but the tablecloth's been disturbed. The iron, again, another household task that she's in the middle of and just left. The knife, um, likely used to stuff newspaper into the cracks of the doors to make the room airtight. So, um, my initial thoughts on this was, is she trying to get rid of her husband, get him out of the house for some reason? She sent him on an errand, he's gone off to do it. But she's doing a lot of things at once, so is she preoccupied? She started baking a cake, she's then um, gone to do the dishes, she's gone to make food, she's gone to do the ironing. There's about half a dozen things going on at once, so she's preoccupied. Is she expecting someone to arrive? Um, there's a glass next to the chopping board um, on the table. It looks like someone was sitting there. So did she have a visitor there? So, um, she's preoccupied, possibly expecting someone, maybe got rid of her husband, there's someone else there. Is it a lover? Is she having an affair and her lover's come round? Possibly. Um, the ice out of the fridge or freezer. Um, was she getting ice out for the drink, subdued by the visitor, and then he's faked up the scene to make it look like a suicide? Uh, maybe he was going to... Uh, she was calling it off, and uh, he didn't like it, so decided to murder her. So uh, my theory on this one is she deliberately got rid of her husband. She was expecting someone. Due to the preoccupation shown in the task, most likely a man she was having an affair with, possibly tried to break it off, so he subdued her and faked suicide, exiting through the window, uh, disturbing the cloth. So I don't know if anyone wants to point out anything they noticed in the picture, or... Everyone's still asleep. Excellent. <laughs> so the next one is the, the dark bathroom. So I'll leave that for a minute. back to the back now? Excellent. So uh, here we have a bathroom in a house and uh, the body is in the bath with her legs sticking out. So uh, the deceased is Maggie Wilson and the witness is Lizzie Miller, a neighbour. I roomed in the same house as Maggie Wilson but knew her only from when we met in the hall. I think she had fits of seizures, a couple of male friends came to see her fairly regularly. On Sunday night, the men were there and there was a lot of drinking going on. 
Sometime after the men left, I heard the water running in the bathroom. I opened the door and found her as you see. And the model shows the scene as discovered by Lizzie Miller. So she's effectively just opened the door and seen this. So it's, again, fairly undisturbed. Um, so first of all, bottle and glass. So uh, they've been in the bathroom drinking. Um, they've knocked over the bottle and glass. Could be a, some fingerprints there or some DNA. Uh, the sink. Um, so could she have tried to refresh her up there, refresh herself because of illness from her disorder or alcohol? The tub stopper, so the uh, plug for the bath. Um, it's not plugged in, so was she actually drawing herself a bath at the time? Her legs, now this is an interesting thing here, her legs are just sticking up in the air. Um, so rigor mortis is set in, but she hasn't died she you know she hasn't died in that bath with her legs sticking up like that. It looks like she's been moved. The body, um, is there any signs of trauma? Is there water in the lungs, blows to the head? Um, lividity, <coughs> the blood pooling to one area of the body could determine how she was was she lying down when she died, was she sitting down, etc. That's uh, that's that one. Um, so, uh, for drug users, um, a common thing to revive someone who's passed out is to put them in a tub of cold, cold water. So, um, if she passed out when drunk, as a result of her seizures, maybe, did her friends put her in the tub to try and wake her up, but uh, she'd already expired. Uh, the body looks like it's been moved, the legs... She hasn't died in that position in that bath. Uh, the rigor would have the legs would have fallen down and not be sticking up straight. Uh, prints and DNA from the glasses and the taps. Was she on any medication? Could that react to the alcohol? Uh, there's a bottle by the bath. They could analyse that. And there's also a rag in the sink which might have chemicals or DNA on it. So I think this was a, a bit of an accident. Um, I think she passed out while drinking and expired. Um, she might have choked on vomit, you know, they could check if there was any present, or reacted to her medication for seizures if she was on any. And her friends basically thought she just passed out, tried to wake her up, put her in the bath, and couldn't revive her. But it looks like at the time she'd already been dead for quite a bit of time if her legs are fixed in rigour. So does anyone have any comments on that? Or? The friends are drunk as well. It's yeah, 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 yeah. If friends are drunk, they're not thinking straight. They're probably panicking a bit as well. So, uh, yeah, Steve's quite right. Anyone else? No? Okay. The red bedroom. Um, so, uh, here we have a scene. It's a bedroom and closet with uh, the bodies in the closet with a cut throat. So uh, the deceased was Mary Jones, a prostitute, and the uh, first witness is Mrs. Shirley Flanagan, her landlady. That morning I passed the open door of Mary's room and called out hello. She didn't answer, so I looked in and found room as you see it. Jim Green, her boyfriend and a client, came in with Mary the afternoon before. I don't know when he left. I found her body and called the police. Uh, witness, Mr. Jim Green, boyfriend, client. 
I met Marie on the sidewalk the afternoon of June 28th and walked her to a nearby package store where we bought two bottles of whiskey. We went to her room and sat smoking and drinking for a while. Marie sat in the big chair and got very drunk. Suddenly, about warning, she grabbed my open jackknife. I used it to cut the string on the bottles and ran into the closet and shut the door. When I opened the door, she was lying there just like that. I left immediately. Um, I think that says the model shows the premises as Mr. Green left it. So um, there's rags and bottles. Um, you see the bottle of whiskey on the floor there, but they've been knocked over. Uh, there's a box of candy or biscuits or something on the floor, quite nice looking box as well, that's just been discarded there. Uh, there's the body, her throat's been cut and the knife's in her hands. Um, it's asking uh, there about her wrists bound, but there are actually bangles on her wrists apparently, so uh, she wasn't tied up, there's not evidence of that. Uh, the bureau and glass, uh, the dresser drawers are open. Um, and things have been pulled out. There's a glass there, and her suitcase is out and uh, quite possibly packed. So um, my first question is: Is she going somewhere? You know, her her suitcase is out. She's emptied her dresser. Uh, is she leaving, running away from Jim? There's some signs of a struggle. Uh, the whiskey's been knocked over, and there's a few other bits and pieces uh, that have been um, disturbed. Uh, DNA on the glass could verify the story of if she was drinking with Jim. Uh, the angle of wound could possibly tell if you self-inflicted. If it was a downwards angle, it might be more likely her rather than someone else. Uh, has the body been moved? They could test if lividity is fixed. And uh, are there any fingerprints on the knife? Um, if there's no fingerprints on the knife, it's obviously been wiped down. If it's just her fingerprints on the knife, that doesn't fit with the story either because Jim was using the knife, so you'd expect both prints if the story is, is actually genuine. Um, but, you know, if it is murder, then there might be both prints as well. So I think um, they had an argument. They argued and broke up. He stormed out, but uh, later on reconsidered, came back, box of chocks, you know, trying to uh, get on a good side. Um, but uh, she'd already started packing and... Uh, told him to get packing. He flew into a rage and then killed her. So that's my theory on what happened to you as a murder. Uh, anyone, uh, any comments, disagreements? Yeah? I find two points. One, this was in 1944. The suitcase for a prostitute, she probably moved often mm. and was, was very mobile. I don't think she owned very much in that apartment. But also, too, women don't ordinarily cut their own throats. Yeah. I, I, I think they tend to slit a wrist more. Yeah, yeah, quite possibly, yeah. Um, so it could be interesting to look at the figures of female suicide, if, if throat cutting is uh, how high that ranks up there. But yeah, wrists is the obvious one, isn't it? The yeah, one, uh, I think mm. that I've never really heard of too many women cutting their own throats. Mm. I've never heard of one. You've never heard of one or only heard of one? I've never heard of one kind of thing, yeah. Yeah. My, my point is that the, when I've actually come home and the drawers are all open, I've been burgled. Yeah. Leave, they always leave the, the drawers open. I don't think a woman 
pack in a suitcase and she's going to leave all the drawers open yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's one of the questions, isn't it? Is is there actually all their possessions in there? Have they been nicked? Um, yeah, interesting point about the burglars and stuff. You know, maybe Jim is in fact lying about the story because he thinks people are automatically going to say, "Oh, you murdered her." Whereas, in fact, there was a burglary and the burglars killed her. Um, and uh, he said it's a suicide in order to deflect blame from him because he's worried of being the obvious culprit. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Anyone else? How can, you, how can he be a boyfriend and client? Maybe started off as one and became the other. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, a frequent client, maybe. I, I don't know. Yeah, that is a good point. Yeah. Boyfriends don't pay. Boyfriend in quotes. Yeah, yeah, boyfriend in quotes, yeah, possibly, yeah. Yeah, boxing chocolate, he wasn't paying. Okay, and uh, moving on to the last one, uh, the parsonage parlour. Um, before I do this, I think I've enough time to have quite an amusing story. I was actually in Starbucks uh, earlier in the week looking at pictures of this um, when a craft knife fell out of my bag, so I must have looked quite odd, I think. <laughs> so um, it's uh, a crime scene here of the parlour of a parson's house with a body in the middle. So, um, the deceased is Dorothy Dennison, a high school student, and the witness is her mother, Mrs. James Dennison. On Monday, about 11 o'clock, Dorothy walked downtown to buy some hamburger steak for dinner. She didn't have much money in her purse. When she didn't return in time for dinner, I called my neighbour, who said she'd seen her walking toward the market, but hadn't seen her since. I also called the market, and the proprietor said he had sold Dorothy a pound of hamburger sometime before noon, but didn't notice which way she turned when she left. By late afternoon, I was really alarmed and called the police. And the next witness is Lieutenant Peel, a police officer. On Monday afternoon at 5.25pm, I took the telephone call from Mrs. Dennison at police headquarters and at once took charge of the matter personally. The customary inquiries began and by Wednesday, a systematic search of all closed or unoccupied buildings in the vicinity was undertaken. It was not until Friday, August 23rd at 4.15pm that me and Officer Patrick Bullivan entered the parsonage and found her. And uh, the temperature during the week ranged between 86 and 92 degrees with high humidity. So um, we've got covered chairs and piano, so the building uh, isn't currently occupied. Uh, the body's in the middle of the floor. Uh, there's a knife wound, a knife uh, still in the body, and there's also what appears to be bite marks on the chest. And I think some bruising on the face as well. Uh, there's a hammer found near the body. Uh, there's the hamburger meat <coughs> on the chair and her purse. They've just been put down quite neatly. They haven't been chucked or anything. Um, so uh, is the hamburger showing the level of decomposition you'd expect for that amount of time? It looks like it's starting to rot. Um, but the body doesn't look like there's much decomp on it. So has she been kept alive for part of the time? 
there's mail there, so the house is unoccupied. Um, is someone collecting it, perhaps, who has access to the house and keys? Um, oh, sorry, I went too far then. So, um, so uh, yeah, the, um, uh, the main question is, has she been kept alive? Has she been held against her will for some amount of time? Um, the hamburger meat is starting to decompose, but is the body. Um, was she held captive? Are there any ligature marks on her that might confirm this? Um, the house belongs to uh, a vicar, and, but he's away during the summer. So how did the killer know the house is empty? How did he have access to it? As there's no apparent sign of force entry. Um, on the stool by the piano, there's actually some blood. So was she playing the piano with her back to whoever else was in the room and he hit her across the head of the hammer? Or was she in there herself and did someone sneak in and hit her? Uh, there's bite marks on her body. Are they pre or post mortem? Um, check for DNA, make uh, mouth casts. There looks like there's bruising on the bite marks on her face, so it's likely they were pre mortem, but uh, an autopsy can confirm. Is a sexual motive likely? Um, do a sexual assault kit on the victim? Was any sexual abuse pre or post mortem? Are there any other wounds in the body? Is there a head wound from the hammer? Any sign of torture? Uh, the hammer and knife should be checked for DNA and prints. Is the body posed? Is that a natural way for it to fall or has it been moved and posed? Now, the thing else as well is, I'm just going to go quickly go back to the slide. She's dressed quite nicely for someone just going to the market to buy burger meat. Um, so was she meeting someone? Uh, the room's also quite tidy as well, so it doesn't look like there was a, a massive struggle. Her possessions were placed neatly on the table, um, so it looks like she came willingly into the room, didn't resist her killer, and she even knew or trusted them or was surprised by them and quickly subdued. So I think this was a murder. Um, obviously. <laughs> I think she was lured willingly by her killer, possibly had her back to him, maybe playing the piano, so she could play the piano would be an interesting uh, thing to find out. And he subdued her with the hammer, and uh, the motive was most likely sexual, possibly torture involved. And uh, the time of death, an interesting thing to see if she was held alive before she was murdered. So does anyone have any uh, comments on that? Or We need more on her relationships. Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. Yes, if, it's, um, if that's on the ground floor, and it's a parlour, yeah. it should be on the ground floor. If she was a prisoner, she, wouldn't she have tried to open the windows? I mean, are the windows locked? Yeah. Or can you just walk up to them and open them? Because it proves what you said in a way about her being willing. Yeah. She's very well rested on that. It's so tiny. Yeah, yeah. And that maybe she was held in a different room in the uh, house, so could we have checked in the other rooms? Um, ligature marks, or maybe she was drugged, perhaps. So, yeah, yeah, that's an interesting point. If she was held, where was she held? Because it doesn't look like it was there. Um, so, uh... You're making the assumption that she was held against her will. Yeah. Actually, she might have been there for a while and then murdered just before. Yeah, um, I think the, the, the assumption I make is the burger meat, because it's there rotting. You know, would she have left it there? To rot, that's, that's my main thing. But you, yeah, you could be quite right there. Now, you all probably want some answers on these, don't you? <laughs> I haven't got any. <laughs> because these are actual uh, tools used for police training, the answers are kept under lock and key. Uh, they're still used today, so uh, there aren't actually any answers. <laughs> Which is a bit of a cop out, I'm sorry, but. Uh... Oh, I'm going back, not forward, sorry. 
Um, a lot of the details were changed. Um, they're not 100% accurate as well. I think um, some of them were amalgamation of several cases. Like um, apparently uh, the one of the bathroom might have been partly inspired by the Brides in the Bath case in the UK. Um, but uh, there's various sources here um, if you do want to learn more. Uh, about these, because I, I think they're fascinating. There's 18 of them. Um, then they're not available for public view, but apparently by appointment they do sometimes let people see them. They are occasionally loaned out to exhibitions. I think I think the Welcome Collection had a few a couple of years ago over here. So, um, but yeah, these images come from the website deafindiorama.com, which has got lots of information. Uh, there's a book by Corinne May Botts, The Natural Studies of Unexplained Death, which is uh, got details of all of them and there's also got solutions to one or two of them at the back that have been revealed and there's also an excellent documentary um, of Dolls and Murder which looks at uh, the wider development of uh, crime scene investigation so um, yeah that's it so thank you for listening I hope you found it interesting Thank you very much, John. I was uh, stated at the start, there is time for Q&A, so if anybody does have a question to ask John, then do please raise your hand or run over to you with the microphone. Don't speak without it, because people in the room won't hear you, and they'll hate you forever. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, pretty much. It's just training the lines of thinking. So getting them to think about if they saw this crime scene, how they would investigate them rather than actually solving them. So it's not a, a murder mystery as such, but more of a, a thought exercise of how you do it rather than why. When they use them today for training, do they ignore the year? I, th I think they do, yeah, because they're told to consider things like DNA yeah. and other forensics. Okay. So, yeah. So they I've would approach it from a 2015 viewpoint rather than from the year that Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the documentary's actually got some footage of police officers actually examining them and looking. I think um, I think they look at the, the free room dwelling is one of them they look at. So, uh, But, yeah, they, they, they ask, is there DNA, um, CCTV? So, yeah, they, they use it from a modern standpoint rather than thinking this was in 1896, they wouldn't have had DNA or fingerprinting, etc. John, have you got any questions you'd like to ask yourself? No, I, I think I'm fine. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> Um, it was actually the CSI uh, plotline. Um, I was watching the DVD and I thought, this is just bizarre. Where did they get this from? So I looked it up out online and I found out about uh, if they were inspired by this and started looking more into it. Hey! <laughs> Standing here awkwardly. <laughs> I was going to say about her, I've forgotten her name, the lady who, who reconstructed uh, Francis Lee. Yeah. Um, did she um, reconstruct them all from memory or did she 
photos? Yeah, she, she actually went to some of the crime scenes. Um, they took her along to the crime scenes. She witnessed some of the autopsies. Apparently she had quite a strong stomach because quite often she'd be sitting there having lunch while they were doing the autopsies and she watched. Um, she spoke to the police officers, read press reports, crime scene reports. Um, a lot of details changed. Probably crime scene photos as well, yeah. Um, like I said, some of them aren't 100%. They're more inspired by a couple of cases. But, uh, yeah, her, her research into them was uh, highly detailed. I don't think she left a stone unturned. And, yeah, as well as that, she'd, uh, she'd uh, actually contact doctors and say, if someone died this way, what signs would there be on the body? So, interesting correspondence to have. You know, maybe they uh, thought they should look at her perhaps after that. But... <laughs> Chance, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to sit down. After this, John refuses to answer any more questions. I'll ask him something in the bar. Right. He does have security. There we go. Come on. Uh, 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 uh,